Hey everybody, Zach here. Just wanna give a quick thank you and shout out to Element 451 for making today's conversation possible. I've been talking with several several of you um, about their new product packs and just wanna reiterate how much of a game changer I think that this is for the higher ed CRM space. So you know that moment after you've finally gone through the whole RFP process, you've done you know training and onboarding with the CRM vendor that you selected and then you know, you're know you in the CRM and you realize, oh my gosh, there's just so much work to do to get up and running, right? Like we've got to build out our conflows, we've got to build out our landing pages, et cetera. Well, with PAX by Element 451, this headache goes away because what PAX is, is it's essentially pre-packaged content, right? Pre-built content, designs, and automations. So you're actually able to do in minutes what would normally take your enrollment management team or your marketing team or your IT team weeks to do. No code needed, no writers, you know, no wasted time. Each pack is designed with a very specific goal in mind. So for example, you could install the senior search pack and in minutes, you'll have five personalized emails that are totally branded to your school, your audience segments, um, and a whole marketing automation workflow that will make the campaign run effortlessly. So in a fraction of the time that it usually takes, you'll be well on your way to achieving your enrollment goals. We all know that uh, time is everything, especially these days. So what's super cool about Element 451 is that they're, you know, they're finally a higher ed CRM that actually comes with content, guys. Like, this is game changing. Uh, anyways, learn more at element451.com forward slash enrollify. Again, that's element451.com forward slash enrollify. And if you'd like a personal introduction to the team there, um, I, I know artists um, and they are uh, just a fantastic group of people and I'd be wel- I'd, I'd welcome any opportunity I can to introduce you or your team to their customer success team. So feel free to reach out to me directly at Zach, Z-A-C-H at enrollify.org if you'd like me to make that introduction or even give you a sneak peek behind the scenes look at how the product works. All right, everyone, thanks so much for your time and thank you Element for making today's conversation possible. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. Zach here, and I am sitting down today with Marcus Hanscom, who is the Director of Graduate Admissions at Roger Williams University and also a consultant at Dutcher LLC. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Thanks, Zach. Great to have you here. So, Marcus, we have talked, we've been friends for a while, and <laughs> I feel like it's like so over, our conversations are always fun. We were literally just like riffing on a couple of ideas before we went live about how NAGAP which is an association you're very, very involved with, uh, might be able to innovate and do new things. And you care a lot about the graduate enrollment management space and have you know been a pioneer in this space for a while now. Um, so I just want to take a quick moment to ask you, how are you doing? Like, it's been a crazy 18 months. How is like, how is Marcus doing? Uh, hanging in. I mean, I think it's, uh, we've had a lot of conversations recently with NAGAP, especially that We've, we're all a little tired, and you know, <laughs> mental health has has taken a little bit of a turn, I suppose. And everybody's got to be kind of honest about where we are. But thankfully, you know, our, especially especially our campus here, we we tested 
throughout the entire year last year. We had somewhat normal, although we were socially distanced and masked and all that stuff. We were one of the first five schools in the country to put on a vaccine mandate. Wow. And uh, we do have masks at the moment, um, but we're seeing how that goes after undergrads are settled for a couple of weeks. And um, But thankfully, things around here, at least, are feeling more normal. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're, that's a welcome thing, and the students are feeling good about it. So so I'd say, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely feeling better now because people are back and we're starting to feel i hope it can stay this way but we're starting to feel feel normal and i just traveled as you know so it's good to get out of town a little bit and feel like getting back to life here a little bit so it's been great yeah no yeah that's 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 good to hear um we've been on the road for the past few days talking with folks from all over new england students faculty staff about the future of higher education. And we've spent a lot of time talking to folks that either work at the undergraduate level and or are students at the undergraduate level. And today we're speaking with folks who are working in graduate admissions and or are you know, current graduate students or uh, have recently graduated from grad school. And I would love your thoughts just on the, over the past 18 months, thinking about graduate student recruitment specifically, what was most interesting or most challenging about recruiting a class of students when a lot of the tactics that you had previously used, presumably things like events, right, in-person visits, were either not possible or looked a lot different. Can you just talk to us a little bit about sort of like the state of graduate student recruitment and what that's looked like and felt like over the past 18 months? Well, I mean, for for everybody, it's been a matter of switching to digital, but I say switching in kind of a loose way because many of us were already using it. Um, I think that's the irony with the graduate side. You know, undergrad, they are so reliant on the high school visit and the yeah. college fairs and the open houses and the accepted student days and all that stuff on campus that they're, switching to digital was a much bigger jump for them, uh, especially given that graduate, we largely are marketing for specific programs. So our tactics vary based on the students we're trying to recruit and which programs we're trying to recruit them for. And so we were kind of already ready to pivot to that. Hmm. Um, So the events piece was really where I saw the biggest change, where we had to now all of a sudden run an open house on Zoom, for example, and use breakout rooms and all of that. So we've all kind of pivoted there. I think a lot of the, a lot of my colleagues and and particularly colleagues in the, in the career services side that are running the grad fairs or traditional grad events on campuses, they were more juggling with which platform do we use? Is Zoom mm. going to be the place or do we use Brazen or one of those other you know, platforms? And everybody's toyed with things and now they're still continuing. You know, roughly two thirds or more of the grad fairs this fall are staying online, even though we're sort of getting back to normal at most places. So that's been an interesting pivot. But beyond that, I mean, we're used to digital marketing. We're used to the types of content that we're doing online. If you're anything like us, we're recruiting, at least for some of our premier programs around the country, that doesn't always mean we're boots on the ground in all those places. We've had certainly boots on the ground ground where we can, uh, but virtual is not really anything necessarily new. Virtual info sessions are something we've done for many years. So that's not something that we're like, oh, COVID, now we've got to do info sessions online. We were already doing that. So I think a lot of folks were pretty close to embracing that. And fortunately, I'm at a campus where we embrace technology very quickly. Mm. We had licensing and everything in place. So we were ready to go. Not every campus had that opportunity, but most of the grad folks were ready to kind of embrace that, whereas the undergrad really was a much larger pivot. Yeah. Was there a specific sort of like strategy or tactic that you guys used? And maybe you had used it previously, but it started performing better or was, you know, a little bit more interesting in terms of how that campaign performed than maybe it would have been pre-COVID? I mean, digital, I mean, we've started using Halda, um, which 
I had heard from other colleagues in NAGAP that was great. Mm. And, you know, we obviously held has been around for a number of years. But when we started using them, all of a sudden there's all these leads on our website that are stealth otherwise. You know, yeah. they're just poking around our website, researching and all that. But they aren't filling anything out necessarily. But now all of a sudden it's like, oh, here, fill out your personalized plan. Now all of a sudden we're getting all these leads that we didn't have before. So that's turned out really well. And what we've paired with that, uh, we have a few different things, but one of the things that surprised me, especially during COVID was online meetings. And it's, it sounds silly that we're even saying we didn't do it before, huh. but now the fact that we can, we have, we use Microsoft bookings. I know some people use Calendly, whatever it is for you. We have that in our footers. We have it on the website so students can book time with us. And part of the personalized plan when we use Halda is actually to have students at the end of that say like, if you really like what you see here, talk with us more, schedule yeah. time. And inevitably, probably about half of them, um, right from that form, are scheduling time with me or my colleague, Courtney, huh. um, to talk about their program. So we're getting an opportunity to talk to them much earlier in the funnel. And it's interesting because prior to COVID, the stealth behavior was constant. You know, we were hearing from like two thirds of our apps were people that we had never heard from before. And what a lot of folks were saying, well, people don't want to talk to us. It's COVID. You know, they're just researching online. They don't want to chat with us. Now, all of a sudden, we have more people that want to talk on the phone, more mm. people who want to talk on Zoom. So we were finding more engagement one-on-one -on -one than we were before that. And, you know, you think about grad fairs and standing at a table. And unless you're doing something to engage them, to bring them by, you know, sometimes somebody's walking by, they're not even looking at you, you say like, hey, how are you? Like just something benign like that is enough to get somebody engaged with you, especially when you're a place like Roger Williams, you know, we have, we're a great little school, but if I'm standing next to BU and MIT and Penn and all these big schools, you know, Notre Dame, they're not looking at Roger Williams, yeah, you know, yeah. so how do we stand out from the crowd? So digital has actually given us some more opportunity to do that, whether it's using new content, um, info sessions, live lectures. We've done a lot of different things that have kind of exposed our brand in different ways that the in-person just didn't before. Yeah, yeah. What When you think about sort of like the students that you talked with that were part of this fall's class, were, were they asking questions that were maybe different than students previously? Or did you find that when you had conversations with folks that actually like took the time to book a meeting with you, that the questions that they were coming to you with were more sophisticated or, or, or more in-depth um, or, or not particularly? I wouldn't say there was more in depth. I think, especially now that we're capturing them earlier in the funnel, I think we're getting more basic questions in yeah. some ways. The benefit of that is that we're not losing them on the website or losing them, God forbid, somewhere else. And they're getting misinformation often yeah. from either our competitors or from sites like, um, you know, you in interviewed one of our students for forensic psychology. There are sites out there that are talking about what forensic psychology is. And a lot of there's a lot of misinformation because mm. a lot of them come from like, oh, I like law and order. I like CSI. And so like, I want to do that. I want to yeah. be a profiler. The reality is that the number of people that get those jobs is so minute. But mm. yet they go into these programs thinking that's what they want. And so then we're left to kind of pick that up. So the more we get students early in the funnel and can kind of debunk stuff, have an honest conversation about what they want, um, we're very focused here on fit. And I think that's generally true about graduate counselors, admissions folks like us um, that are really not trying to push students into their program, hmm. but instead saying, okay, what is it that you want to do? And does our program, does our curriculum, does our faculty, does our internships, do they meet the things that you need to ultimately get to the end outcome? And you heard that from Julia before that, you know, they want to know that they're getting that job or that that next PhD or the next thing, or they're allowed to explore. 
with our program or not. And if we're not giving that information to them up front and they make a poor decision, it becomes a retention issue. You know, and it's much easier to keep somebody than recruit a new one. We yeah. all know that in admissions, right? So um, finding the re- best fit student. And I think the winners in all of this are the folks that are in admissions offices that are genuinely looking for the student's interest. Mm. And as much as I tell them, yes, our program will work for you, I'm equally telling them forensic psychology at Marymount or at George Washington or John Jay or University of Denver is going to be for them Mm. because their programs are all different from ours in different ways, but I know they might be meeting their specific needs. So I think those are the conversations that we need to have to be honest with students, make sure they're making the right decision. I love that. And, you know, one of the things that we've been asking as we've been talking to folks over the past few days is how education specifically at the graduate level needs to needs to evolve right and one of the things that folks have brought up right is this idea of essentially there needs to be a way to get programs sort of up and running to stand programs up a little bit quicker right and like what does it look like to be able to as you're kind of saying talk to prospects understand what it is that they're actually interested in and even if you don't have quite what they're looking for like what in in theory what what would it look like if you were able to find right opportunities for that student and, and 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 you know work with faculty to stand up a program obviously you can't do this for everybody just based off of their individual interests but like what does it look like to be able to sort of like expedite the 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 process for program development and approval so that some more of the programs offered at the graduate level can be a little bit more contemporary, right? Like they can be a little bit more aligned with what the workforce needs. So I'm just curious, like, do you guys talk about that internally a lot? Like, do you guys, is there much conversation about like adding new programs, updating programs, uh, making programs a little bit more relevant to what today's prospective students are looking for? Or is there really just a lot of friction anytime conversations around the development of new programs comes up? There's a little bit of both. Um, I think we have to look at employer demand. We have to look about the marketplace. I found that you can't get anywhere with faculty if you don't have data. Hmm. Um, and I think that's an obvious point, but I hope folks you know, take that for what it is. Um, there's a lot of data out there. Sometimes you have to engage external platforms like Burning Glass or MC, something like that, um, even ex- external consultants to do some of that work for you. Um, but having that information and being able to say to a faculty member, look, the program, the way it's built right now is not meeting the needs of these employers. And these are our key employers in this area. Or this industry needs this certain skill set. We're not providing that. And they're choosing this other program because they're adapting to that. Mm. There's a lot of unfortunate red tape um, because the program development and approval process largely rests with the faculty. Yeah, um, We have a tenured faculty and a unionized faculty. So we've got two kind of things that are protecting the faculty and not giving them necessarily incentive to work with the administrative side. That's not to say that they don't. Some faculty willingly do that. Others are more resistant. Uh, I think one of the challenges institutions have is incentivizing the faculty, especially if you have that kind of an environment, to encourage them to build or to innovate or do things new with their programs. Some inherently just do it, um, but for the most part, um, they have a lot of commitments. I mean, there's, they're teaching classes, they're doing yeah. research, uh, they have families at home, they have other things. Many of them, we have a lot of programs here that are teaching on overloads because they don't have enough faculty to cover everything. So if you have those kinds of 
um, pressures on the faculty side to then ask them, hey, can you develop this new program? Hey, can you innovate this program? Can you build these new class sections? Now, all of a sudden, it's like, well, how am I going to do that? I don't have faculty to teach it. I don't have the, you know, I don't have the resources. I'm not being incentivized to take on 60 more hours on top yeah. of what I'm already yeah. doing. So really kind of all of that is is kind of working against us. Um, so there's a lot of data points out there as best as we can. And we try to be the boots on the ground. And that's where admissions, I think, can do well is, it's like the students are asking for this, you know, our employers are asking for this. And then having that data to be able to say to the faculty, look, this is not meeting the marketplace. Yeah. And that's how we have to pivot. But you also have to have support from the top down. And sure. that doesn't always happen at every school. Hopefully, um, you know, if you're at a school like ours here and we're, we're a small private school, the reality is for most small private schools is undergraduate revenue is the vast majority of what's keeping the place open. Yeah. And, you know, I could double my graduate enrollment, but that doesn't fix that doesn't all of a sudden, you know, if we lost 100 undergrads, that wouldn't just fix an yeah. undergraduate issue. Sure. So the reality is we have to maintain the undergraduate knowing what's coming down the pike and is really already here as far as the cliff, but then building graduate around that in a way that's successful and adds revenue and adds opportunities for students. Um, so it's a little bit of a give and take, um, but certainly the administrator and the faculty side need to work better together. I think the academic side could maybe work on how much red tape there is to get things done and realize that if there are five other schools that are acting in six months to get a program done, I mean, you were just at SNHU, I think they can get program idea to inception and actually out there in about six months time. Yeah. How yeah. many of us are doing that on a regular basis? We're not. I mean, we're talking about a couple of years time in many yeah. cases. So it's, it's a, it's a big lift for a lot of schools. What do you think, right? Just to brainstorm here, like what could incentives look like for helping, right? Better align what admissions needs and what faculty needs, what, you know, the friction that faculty members encounter, they've got their full plates, but like in, in an ideal world, right? Where do you think, or what ideas do you have about around how incentives could be created to inspire the faculty members to, you know, and maybe even if it's just a cohort of them to say, hey, you know what, like, we want to be the advocates, we want to be the liaisons that's talking to you and your team, who are on the front lines talking to prospects, talking to employers about like, what does the marketplace actually need? What, what do you think some of those incentives could look like? Well, some of the traditional incentives that you'll see are like load release, um, or even a faculty stipend or something like that. Um, but beyond that, I think schools are generally poor at revenue share models. Mm. Um, that's something that really, I think we could revolutionize a lot. Um, we don't have a tendency to have a cost basis where we say, okay, you know, forensic psychology brought in X amount of money this year. If they bring in another 100,000 next year, 20% will go back to the department. Nobody's mm. doing that here. I don't think they're doing it most private schools um, or publics for that matter. Um, and I think the reality is that the faculty knew, well, if I work hard on this and I bring in X amount of more revenue because we have new headcounts in a new program or we've added them to an existing program, now all of a sudden I have faculty development money that's coming back to sure. me. Or I can hire additional faculty lines. Um, knowing that they're given resources and feel like a priority, I think that's where the critical side of this is. I mean, admissions, we are, we're all busting our tails to get things done and you know, get numbers and all of that. But if we don't have a good quality program or faculty to support the classes that we need, I mean, that's another thing from a resource standpoint, if you have classes getting canceled because you don't have enough faculty to teach them, that becomes a retention problem on the sure. other side. And then we end up looking like we over promised them in admissions. So 
I'm always asking for things like, tell me what a two-year schedule looks like in this program. What does a three or four-year part-time schedule look like in this program? So I can say to that prospective student, this is what your schedule will look like, even as a working professional or working mom, that now all of a sudden, you know, you're going to take one class at a time. When are you going to get done? Because we're getting that question all the time. And then they're like, well, if this class is offered every other year, then you might not be able to take it then. So we're going to be much better off if we can have some sort of structured plan and ensure that those classes and sections are being offered. Yeah. But you can't do that if you don't have enough, enough students to do it and enough faculty to teach the sections. And one thing that we've gotten creative with here that I think a lot of schools can really benefit from is thinking about programs that can all share courses. Like, mm. is there a reason why there has to be a research methods course in CJ and in psych and in, uh, trying to think what other programs, preservation, for example, could they all take one methods course? Yeah. And now instead of having five in one class, because you have 15 because you're sharing that that class, or we have a program that we're developing now in real estate um, that would be feeding our construction management, architecture, preservation, MBA programs together huh. and, and leadership for that matter. So now all of a sudden you don't have to, the pressure wouldn't be on me as a brand new cohort, bring in you know, real estate planning that I have to get 15 students for that. Yeah. I have to focus on getting maybe five to eight in that first cohort because we know five to eight will come from those other programs. So the more that we can kind of think about interdisciplinary opportunities and really synergize that is really going to help us a lot with kind of keeping this going. I think that's a undergraduate model that's been used for many years. Yeah. But if you think about graduate programs, there's a tendency to think of them in a silo. Like this belongs, architecture is its thing, preservation is its thing, you know, forensic psych is its thing. But instead, what can we do to kind of join those together, share a section, especially if the content is similar, and really make it so that, yeah, we don't have to bring it. The faculty don't want, the cohort that you were um, interviewing Julia about for forensic and legal psych, we have five to eight students as a new cohort every year. We don't want more than that number mm. of students because we want to give them high quality research. Yep. But if the institution looks at this program and this cohort as not being successful because a section has to have 10 students in it, now all of a sudden that five to eight, we're kind of caught between offering a quality research program, but meeting the minimum headcount goals for those classes. So now all of a sudden, if you can find classes that kind of meet together, our mental health counseling students take classes with them. So some of those sections are solved. Um, but we have to think more creatively on how we do that. Cause I don't think every program should be 30 students in a class. Yeah. Yeah. You know, five students in a class should be okay. And we should be looking at institution revenue models, I think are broken. The fact that they're looking at, I'm saying collectively, not necessarily specifically here, but looking at say criminal justice and saying that section ran with five, you're not making any money. Well, the reality is what about that class that's running at 25 in that same program? So you've got one at five and one at 25. So you're averaging 15 students in a class. They're instead saying that one class is a failure. Hmm. Why aren't we looking at the program as a whole and saying, all right, what's the revenue for that? What's the faculty overhead for that? And saying, are we netting additional revenue there or not? And I think that's a very clear answer on whether you continue a program or not, um, what kinds of innovations are necessary and so on. So it's a lot of kind of in the weed stuff, but there's a lot of strategic enrollment management stuff that could be looked upon more as a unit and thought about graduate in a different way where it could be interdisciplinary and do things that will hopefully innovate to a, a successful point that revenue is not such a strain yeah. and we're not worried about if a class runs at five students. So much gold here. Um, and what if I can sort of like summarize what I hear you saying is there's all this potential, right? There's, there's a lot of ideas, but it, it sort of sounds like what 
we need first and foremost is like you need a silo breaker. Like you need somebody who can come in, listen to these various stakeholders, and then quickly, like and decisively, like take specific action. Like, okay, you know what? Hey, here's a problem. Let's address- like whose job is it to figure this particular thing out? Whose job is it to figure out like how might we sort of reimagine revenue attribution? for this school, right? Or for this program, whatever it might be. So like, I guess when you think about this, is this like, do you need one person to like be sort of the the silo breaker, the designated silo breaker uh, within sort of an institution? Or like, how do schools start to make progress here? Because again, it sounds like, and this is not just true of this conversation of what you're saying, but just in lots of the conversations we've been having recently, it's higher ed. Like you're a campus. There's a lot of smart people here, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the answers lie somewhere. They just lie in different buildings, like in different offices. So like, I guess, how do you think about like, whose job is it to like break down these silos, to reduce this friction, to increase collaboration so that some of these conversations can be had so that some of these ideas that you've just shared can actually be incubated and like properly tested. Well, I think, you know, there's a grad undergrad piece of that. Um, undergrad, I think, has done it well because there's a lot of folks with their hands in those pots. right? Mm. Um, but for undergrad, um, so here at least, we don't have a dean of graduate studies. We don't have a person that graduate education is their thing. Um, we talk, you know, I have kind of a dotted line with the provost and associate provost, but, you know, I report to a vice president of enrollment, so I'm in the administrative side. Um, but there's no kind of ownership of that. So by de facto, uh, you know, we become the graduate school. Sure. So my office ends up being the ones who communicate with all current graduate students, and we're looking at retention stuff, and we're doing student services. Um, that model is a little tough when you only have two professional staff and a support staff in graduate admission. Yeah. And so that's something we've kind of grappled with, and we're in the middle of a strategic plan and trying to sort that out. Uh, I think in most cases for graduate education as a whole, having a graduate dean or a director of graduate studies or something where their goal is to kind of be the unifier, be the glue, I think is important. We don't have that glue here. Yeah. Um, some places that have a graduate school, that kind of solves that a little bit. There going to be some program and faculty ownership issues. That's a separate kind of politic. But um, I think that's where it kind of lies. We have a chief of staff here. I think that's one place where um, he's done a lot of that kind of work as an institution-wide thing. Of course, he's been pulled into COVID stuff more of late. Um, but breaking down silos, I think, is part of that work uh, too. So as a chief of staff, it's not something I was familiar with in my previous school. It was something mm. that new that I saw here um, seems to have worked. But having somebody that, that that's their charge and has the authority um, to be able to do that, I mean, it's, especially if you're not an academic, it's a little challenging sometimes where the administration are looked at the as the enemies, right? So you have to be the, you have to be empowered by say the provost or whomever to say, all right, this is your role to go in, and the faculty know that that's your role. Um, so I think having a graduate studies or some sort of point person, that's the trouble with a lot of small private schools. You know, you, between the undergraduate revenue model and all that stuff, grad has largely been coasting on the side yeah. at a lot of these places, yeah. and then you start looking and go, well, wait a second. What about the graduate numbers? I was just talking in the context of my consulting. We have a client that um, the institution from the president's lens and from the VP's lens, whenever they're doing like a state of the university, there's no mention of grad. Huh. You know, when Even when the consultants went in and asked about how about your numbers, did you meet goals, all that kind of stuff, they only talked about undergrad. And so then the consultants thankfully said, well, wait a second, what about the graduate? 
numbers. So grad is just an afterthought in a lot of places, and we have to somehow find a way to shake out of that. Until we get away from that, I think it's going to be hard to break down these silos and get the actual support that we need. Um, and I always go between, do you hire staff that are exclusively grad to be the grad advocates, the grad pioneers to get things done for grad? Um, I tend to lean toward that way only because the grad knowledge base and the things we need to do to support grad students is so specialized. Um, but the other kind of being, if the president top down is saying graduate is a priority, graduates in every conversation, graduates at a seat at the table at all of the conversations, and there's always that, whether we're talking about COVID, which we ran into last year where undergrad was talked about from a testing lens and what was expected there, but then grad was kind of like right in August, we're like, oh, what about the grad students? Because <laughs> I was waving the flag and saying, well, what are we going to do for them? Um, so we have to have a seat at the table and until yeah. institutions get that way, we can't break down those silos and get interdisciplinary and all that, at least from an institution lens. So then you have to think about grad kind of more exclusively. So schools are going to have to make that decision on what's going to work best for them. But to under-resource and keep grad in a corner and that kind of stuff, and I just mean that philosophically, I suppose, but um, to keep doing that is going to be a mistake, especially knowing that undergraduate enrollments are under threat. You can't just knock on grad's door in July and say we need more students yeah, in the fall. Sure. Um, you can't expect graduate admission just to pull money out of a hat. These things have to be very deliberate and planned, and you have to have the resources to do it. Yeah, so well said. And um, that sort of leads me to a question I am curious about your, your thoughts on around sort of the perceived value of graduate education in the marketplace, right? So, you know, to your point, within the context of an institution, in some cases, like grad is still an afterthought. What does that say about sort of like the public's view around the value of graduate education? Obviously, we've seen sort of like in the news and the media more recently, folks questioning the value of a traditional sort of like four-year degree. But this idea of, of graduate education, right, is something that you know, for, for years has been, uh, is it valuable? Is it not? Should you go to grad school? Should you not? Should you only go to grad school if you're going to pursue one of these, you know, three professional programs? Or talk to us a little bit about, like, how you see as someone who's, like, on the front lines, right, talking to lots of prospective graduate students in any given recruitment cycle. Like, what do you see? Like, what do you hear? Like, what kind of questions are folks asking? And I guess, is it true that people doubt the value of graduate education and if so like how do we how do we overcome some of those concerns right some of those doubts or it, you know can we overcome some of those fears or concerns or doubts well i think a lot of the people that have those fears or doubts or perceptions of their not being value in graduate education they don't even get as far as talking to us because mm. they're they're saying they're already dismissing it before they ever get as far as talking with us sure um i think to your point the the societal kind of perspective at large, people are familiar with undergrad. They're comfortable. They know what college experience looks like. When you hear about somebody going to college, they're familiar with people, you know, uh, kind of stereotypically parties and yeah. getting the experience and, and you need a degree and, and, yeah, and yeah. just get your degree and check the box and you can go work, right? Um, so graduate education, I think, is a little bit more of an unknown. It's more vague. Um, People, I think, see it as, unless you know, like, if somebody's going to be a doctor, people generally know, okay, you get, get your MD, you got to go to grad school, yeah. right? Um, but generally, people just, as you're saying, hear grad school and they hear dollar signs. Yeah. That's really what they see. The reality is, if you look, and I know there's been a lot of talks about, um, like, micro-credentials, yep. mini-masters, and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
and even the badges that were kind of popular for a while, they're still doing them. Um, I'm not seeing them take off as much as people thought they were going to. The reality is employers are not asking for those things. Yeah. Um, and I think that was the gamble that these, now if you're MIT, great, we're not MIT. So we're not gonna just try to pretend that um, MIT's done very well with those models. But the reality is employers are still wanting folks to have master's degrees or they're wanting, you know, bachelor's degrees. Traditional education, yep. unless you're going into a trade, traditional education is still valuable. Yep. And, and you talk to Julia in psychology, you need at least a master's, particularly a licensed eligible master's to do anything really in psychology, at least clinically. Um, and then otherwise students are going to get their doctorate so they know that. Architects in most states have to have a master's or a terminal architecture degree, which is at least five years um, to be a licensed architect. Um, obviously the medical professions are the same way. People need to be better educated as a whole on what graduate education does. Hmm. Undergraduate education is, here's how you do this, spit it back to me on a test, Yeah. right? So you're learning core skills. When you start getting the master's level, you'll now start to think. It's more strategic, kind of understanding how to innovate, do things differently, conflict resolution, problem solve. Those things are much more kind of fleshed out in a graduate program. Although, as you heard from Julia, there's still a lot of students they come in a master's level program that still don't know what they want. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot to be said, I think, about preparation at the undergraduate level. Um, I think there's also a lot of misconceptions about fields like forensic psychology that then they're like, oh, well, I, I really like profiling, but I also like this, but I also like that. And so, as you heard, there's some value in being able to continue that exploration at the master's level. Doctoral level, you can't do that. Doctoral level, you're 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 set in on what that end goal yep. is, what that path is. Um, so at the master's level, still some exploration there. In other cases, if you get an MBA, you're really just covering kind of core, and MBAs are, are a little bit different in that you're getting kind of foundational coursework, accounting, finance, economics, marketing, so on. And then you're having kind of a second kind of advanced core that's building and allowing you to do that thinking I was talking about. Mm. So, And you hear about MBAs that are one year like what we offer here. Uh, these students have to have the foundational stuff in their undergrad. So they've taken a business undergrad already. Um, so they're doing the thinking pieces in the master's level. And that's really critical for people who want to be leaders. I think mm. that's where people have to start thinking about, all right, I can go out and work in a factory and be a mechanical engineer and do that stuff. But if I want to lead all the engineers on the line there, I want to be a good manager, understand how to resolve conflict, manage personnel, um, motivate teams, those are going to come in a master's level discussion and the types of coursework that you cover at the master's level that just undergrad is not getting to. So in short, I think society as a, as, as a whole needs to understand more what graduate education is, and maybe that falls on us to help them educate. Yeah. I don't know how we get there, but there we have to, a lot of work to do. And if, especially if undergrads at the, uh, during their institutional, you know, their undergrad experience, they're not hearing from faculty on why they should get a grad degree. I think that's problematic. I mm -hmm. mean, the faculty are on the front lines. We have advisors. Um, we have some academic advisors and career advisors. I think they're generally, you know, up on stuff, but are they up on the specifics of forensic psychology education or architecture education or criminal justice education? Probably not. Um, you know, I have, you know, there's a colleague of mine that I've worked with for a number of years at Michigan State. She works in psychology there and she's an advisor in the psychology department. I also have a colleague at UConn does the same thing. They have to be very under, they have to understand the types of clinical disciplines that students are going to run into at the master's level. So they work with folks like me and say, all right, how do we get a student to forensic? But what is it exactly that your program in forensic is doing versus doing 
uh, you know, a developmental or a school psych program or something like that. So they have to understand that. And I think schools that have those models are better off. Of course, we don't have all the resources to have that. But giving students the appropriate preparation at the undergraduate level is, is critical. And if, you know, the moms and dads out there aren't going to do it. And you think about all the first-gen students that don't have a lot of um, access and support at home. Uh, faculty and advisors need to be those people. And in many cases, we've had to become those. Yeah. Um, and we're fine doing that. But that, and really from a marketing lens, that's how we've done well. Uh, we've been the altruistic advisors in going for forensic psychology education, for example. We just do presentations on what is forensic psychology, what kinds of jobs you're gonna get, what are the outcomes, what kind of research do you do? Educating people on what exactly they're specifically getting into. Um, I, there's a great book called Different by Young Mi Moon. She's a faculty member at Harvard in the business school, I believe. And one of the quotes I remember she talks about, and I'm not gonna get it right, but her husband, she and her husband going into Foot Locker. And you look at the wall of shoes in Foot Locker, right? If you're a foot per, or if you're a, shoe, a sneaker person or whatever, you get it. You, you look across that wall and say, that exact shoe is exactly what I want, right? But then she's looking around like, dear God, what am I looking at here? I have no idea, mm. you know? So if you mm. look at something like that and you're an outsider, right? She calls it a category outsider. You're looking at the wall of 100 shoes. I don't know where to start. So think about that with a student lens. You know, mm. if they're looking at colleges, where on earth do I go? Yeah. What, yeah. what do these colleges offer that are any different? Other, and then they start looking at what are the things that I have access to that I can compare on? Price. So they're gonna say, all right, well, such and such is $100 less. I might as well go there. Yep. They're not yeah. talking about faculty research. They're not talking about internships. They're not talking about location and things. And I always tell students that location and cost should come at the end of your list rather than the front, first end. I know that on undergrad, that's always really top of the list. Hmm. But for a grad student, they should be so focused on research and internships and curriculum um, uh, focus and things that you were asking Julia about that, um, First-gen students especially don't know they should be asking those questions. Yeah, yeah. So now we have to try to advise, and I think that's an opportunity that we have to do better. It's interesting. Like, If I could briefly summarize what, um, what you've shared, it's almost like we've done an effective job as a society at like branding the undergraduate experience. Like People know what that means. They can see it, right? They can visualize you know, big you know, lecture halls, football games, right? dorm life, and the hope is that you graduate and you can find a job, right? Mm -hmm. we, we haven't been as successful, I think, at like branding the graduate experience, right? Like, yeah. and again, to your point, right? It, one of the reasons is because it's just so different depending on like, you know, the industry and the program that you're pursuing, et cetera. But it seems like one of the things that collectively higher ed could do to increase the perceived value of graduate education is by showcasing more examples, right, of like, this is what it means to be a graduate student. Like, yeah. this is the, these are the doors that this opens, right, that your undergrad experience alone, in all likelihood, won't be able to open. And I feel like that is like an undertaking that the industry needs to tackle. It's like, how do we better, how do we showcase what this actually looks like in the same way that you know, to the point where when someone says graduate education, you've got images that come to your mind yeah. in the same way that you do when somebody says your college experience, right? Yeah. Um, I got two quick final questions for you. One is just around like affordability, right? So like we've talked a little bit about like uh, financing your education and whatnot and sort of lots of the friction that it exists um, there. What are your thoughts on like, like is there anyone that you know that's doing something new or innovative and trying to increase 
access, uh, trying to make graduate education a little bit more affordable. Obviously, there are, you know, grants, if you can secure them, which are hard to come by mm -hmm. in many contexts. There's TA positions, which are also, in many instances, kind of hard to come by, pretty competitive. Like, what do you think, do, do, do folks talk at all about, like, income share agreements at the graduate level? Or, like, is there anything that you know or you're aware of where folks are thinking really differently and creatively about how to make graduate education more affordable? I haven't heard a lot. I've heard of tuition freezes and those types of things. Um, of course, TAs, GAs, RAs, those all have, have opportunities. Um, I don't know of any offhand really that are doing anything crazy innovative that's helping folks. I've heard of rotational programs. Um, it's a program that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, there was a, it was a partnership with the University of Memphis and FedEx because FedEx is in is in Memphis. Hmm. And so students, I forget if it was a logistics program or something like that, but the, this, or maybe business even, the students would do a rotational placement at FedEx. And in exchange for that, FedEx was paying for their graduate degree. Huh. So I think that's where a lot of opportunities exist with corporate. We're actually doing some work like that at the undergraduate level here. We have, um, and I think it's Shamit, I, I might be getting it wrong, but it's in our construction management program and they're specifically um, funding students of color. I think we have five students total, I might be getting it wrong, but five students of color who are 100% funded. So this includes their room and board and wow. their tuition and they're getting four years and they're doing internships at, I think it's Shamit, I hope I'm getting it right, um, but it's through, again, a corporate partnership. And so because Access is important to us. Diversity and equity and inclusion is important to us. We're specifically helping a group of students of color in construction management to get the skills that they need to do well because they know that there's a diversity problem too, um, yeah. particularly at leadership levels in construction. Um, so they have opportunities here now to do that, and the students are doing it very affordably because the employer is willing to foot the bill. So I think that's the opportunity that we need to be thinking about at the graduate level is partnering with corporations to sponsor students in programs that ultimately feed their employment needs, but also help us. Last question for you. When you yeah. think about just the next couple years, right? If you could have your cake and eat it too, if you <laughs> could wave a magic wand and say, this is what I want to tackle to leave my mark on graduate education to help increase the overall sort of like perceived um, value of an advanced degree, what is something like practical or or not practical that you would do that you would choose to implement in your context um, here or or elsewhere that you think would have a lasting impact well you give me the loaded question as the last <laughs> one here um, well there's one thing that we've kind of already embarked on here that at least uh, from a legacy kind of perspective is important to me was that students are feeling important and part of the community here. And I think it's going to be true at any small private school as we've talked about. Um, graduate students being a, an afterthought as far as resources and other things is one thing as far as it impacting me as a staff member. It's another thing to impact the students. Um, and certain programs, you know, we're sitting here in the architecture building, they have a very good kind of microcosm here where there's a lot of great supports and services and activities and other things around that as well as their academic experience that doesn't necessarily exist in every program. Hmm. 
And so we, um, we instituted a graduate student association a couple of years ago. Um, so now students have activities to go to, and um, we even do things as little as happy hours, or we go to Red Sox games, we've gone to Broadway shows. Um, we also have advocacy arms of that and to give students opportunities. So really, where I hear students come back to me and say, I'm so glad we have the opportunity now to do something outside the classroom. We feel like we're included. We feel like we're part of this community. We feel important. Um, those things are hugely valuable. Yeah. Um, you know, when the president started a few years ago, I invited him to our graduate happy hour that we had at orientation. I fully expected him to be too busy to go, but he came and brought his wife with him. The students loved getting a chance to meet with him. That kind of thing is just my goal here and anywhere else that I may be for graduate enrollment is to make sure that anything that, as far as this kind of afterthought stuff, yeah, stops with me. It mm -hmm. doesn't hit the students. The students feel like they're getting their, their money's worth, they're getting their value experience. And ultimately, if we're smart about it, that means those students are going to have affinity not only with their programs, but also with the institution. And from an advancement lens, they're going to start thinking about giving back and supporting yep. the institution in the long term. So those are things that I'm really focused on. But my number one is to make sure that students have a good experience, that they look back in two years or five years or 10 years and call me up and say, Marcus, that was the best decision I made to go to Roger Williams. Thank you for that opportunity. Thanks for being honest with me about that opportunity. But I also see it as equally as a win if somebody goes to Marymount and calls me in five years and said, you know, Marcus, thank you for that advice to go to Marymount because I'm now in my dream job and I'm glad you were honest with me. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing that we need to focus on in a graduate education space, all of us. And if we do it right and give them the right credence on campuses and build community so they feel included and important, I think that's going to be, um, I'm going to see that as a win. Well, Marcus, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for the value that you bring to the space. Um, and keep up the good work, man. I know that a lot of people are looking up to you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Great to see you. If you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to, digital resource for enrollment marketers out there.